The year is 1989, and two brothers, Bert and John Jacobs, designed their first t-shirt. They were ahead of their time, and, and they, as 20 and 23-year-olds, decided that they wanted to start their own clothing company. They want to start their own clothing line. So they did. And they started designing t-shirts and, and they were based out of Boston. They had an apartment that basically was a warehouse and an office and apartment all at the same time. Um, and, and they were selling t-shirts in Boston at, at college campuses out of the back of their van. Now, before you think that this was some like cool hipster VW van, it wasn't. It was a Plymouth Voyager. It wasn't even cool enough for soccer moms at the time. But in 1994, they kind of hit the low in terms of their, their business. Their t-shirts just weren't very cool, and people didn't buy them. And they went on this road trip uh, to another college to sell shirts at this college fair, and they came back particularly discouraged because nobody was buying their stuff. So when they got back, they invited some of their friends over to their apartment to have a little bit of a party. And they did something that's a little bit unique. They invited their friends to actually uh, critique their designs and give them some feedback Probably not what I would do at the bottom of uh, the bottom when it comes to uh, small business, but that's what they did. And out of that meeting came this little stick figure with these sunglasses and this awkward, cheesy smile and a phrase, life is good. And they had 48 t-shirts printed with the last $78 in their bank account. That's what we call faith. And they drove to Cambridge, Massachusetts for a college fair. They sold out 48 shirts in less than an hour, including the two that were on their backs. And within three years, Life is Good became a million-dollar company. Today, it's a hundred-million-dollar company with 150 employees. You've probably seen their shirts around. You've actually probably even seen one on Will Hutch's back, who's personally trying to resurrect a brand that right now is only popular among grandparents. Good luck, Will. I was going to ask you to wear one tonight, but I forgot. So that seems to be a theme. I'm forgetting things today. Life is good. Now, I did a little bit of shopping on their website, and you know, I picked out four shirts that I thought would maybe be a really good fit for our friend Fritz. So uh, Alex, why don't, you, why don't you put up the first picture? Treats, naps, walks. Life is good. All three make Fritz happy. So, Okay, how about the next one? May the fish be with you. If you know anything about Fritz, he's a big fisherman, so you know this would be a good one. How about the next one? Iron Man. It's almost time to get the golf clubs out. And last one, my personal favorite. I'm not old. I'm a classic. So, man... I'm going to be taking up a collection at the end of the night to order Fritz that shirt. They've got thousands of designs over the last couple of decades, but they all center around this idea of positivity, of optimism, of finding enjoyment in hobbies, in in life. But I have a question. Is it okay for Christians to use that phrase? Is it okay for us to say life is good? Is it okay for us to find enjoyment in things that are on earth? 
I think for a moment about the prosperity gospel. We talk about the prosperity gospel all the time because it's a false gospel. It's one that's taking the world and even parts of our country by storm. It's this false belief that says when you believe in Jesus, when you become a Christian, God's gonna give you everything you want. He's gonna give you the house. He's gonna make you healthy. He's gonna make you happy. You just gotta name it and claim it and you'll, you'll, you'll get it. Jesus wants to make you happy. Is that what we see in scripture? No, it's not. Jesus doesn't promise our best life now, but our best life later, our best life in eternity. That's why the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. So then can we say life here is good? Or how about all the passages in the New Testament that talk about persecution? I think what Paul says, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or think about what Jesus said, that if you're going to follow after him, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. So does that mean that if if we're living a good life, if we can say life is good, does that mean we're conforming to the pattern of this world, as Paul says in Romans 12? Or, or does it mean that, that, you know, since we're not facing imminent persecution and life is, is good, that, that we're doing something wrong? Or how about this? Maybe you've heard the line, Christians don't know how to have fun. <laughs> or Christians can't have fun. Because there's some that would say, in, in order to have fun, you've got to drink more than you can handle. You've got to smoke a joint. You've got to pop some pills. You've got to live loose sexually. You've got to take a trip to the casino. You've got to watch some explicit movie or TV show. And since Christians can't do any of those things, then certainly we can't have any fun. So naturally, all Christians are Debbie Downers, bumps on a log, the deflated balloon of every party, right? So can we say life is good? Well, here's my response. I would say, I certainly hope we can say that. I I certainly hope that we can say life is good. But instead of taking my word for it, or instead of just basing a decision on how we feel, maybe we can let the wise King Solomon uh, answer that question for us tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That's where we're going to be as we continue uh, our series. And if we're going to understand a text... Context is key. We've got to understand what comes before, got to learn what comes after. And in this part of Ecclesiastes, a little bit unique. If you've been reading Ecclesiastes at all in your private study, which you should be doing, that'd be a great way to supplement what we're doing on Monday nights. If you read Ecclesiastes, it kind of has a, a depressing tone. But here in chapter five, Solomon takes a break from the depressing monologue and he He peels back the curtain. He takes a look behind the veil and gives us some insight. He actually comes to somewhat of a a spiritual conclusion, some insight for wise living. And in this part of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, it reads kind of like Proverbs. It would fall under the genre of of wisdom literature. But right before our text tonight, which is verses 18 18 through 20, you remember verses 10 through 17. We looked at that a number of, of weeks ago, maybe the last time that I was here on a night like tonight where uh, the wise teacher talked about the love of money. You remember the big lie? The big lie is is that the more money that we have, the happier that we'll be. And that's a big lie because the love of money, it leads to abundant anxiety. It leads to fake friends. It leads to harmful hoarding. The love of money never satisfies. It always leaves us wanting more. That's the text right before the verses that we're looking at tonight. The danger of the love of money. So before we read our text, what would you expect Solomon to say in response to the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of possessions, love of wealth, the love of materialism. What would you expect? Maybe, okay, Christians, time to take a vow of poverty. 
time to sell everything you have. It's time to live on the minimum. Maybe it's time to practice ascetism, which is a belief where you deny any pleasure in the world. Is that what you'd expect him to say? He throws us a little bit of a curveball in verse 18. Follow along with me as I read. Behold, in other words, listen up. What I'm about to say is important. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God's given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Well, before we dive in, let's just make a couple quick observations from the text. Solomon says in verse 18, he's seen something that is good and fitting. In other words, you could translate that. He's seen something that's, that's beautiful, to eat and drink and find enjoyment. That's an idiomatic phrase. He's not literally saying that it, he's not literally talking about going out and enjoying a pint. That's not what he's saying. But it's an idiom for enjoying the fruit of our labor, enjoying the fruit the profit of our work. He uses the word toil all throughout Ecclesiastes. Toil is a, a way to describe our work, our job, our occupation. It's not necessarily a negative thing or a bad thing. It's just a way to describe the, the challenge, the, the difficulty of work, of toil. That's how he uses that word. But did you notice how he declared life to be short? He said, in the few days of his life, that God has given, for this is his lot. Did you make the connection that not so subtle tie to God's sovereignty, his power, and his control? All the days of his life that God has given. God doesn't simply know everything. He doesn't just simply see everything. God rules and reigns above everything. He's in control of all things. I think of Proverbs 16, 33, which says this, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We don't cast lots very much in 2022, but it was used often during Bible times. We even see that in Acts chapter one. It was a form of dice. The disciples were trying to pick between uh, two men, which one was gonna be the replacement disciple for Judas. They cast lots and naturally they, they select my favorite disciple, Matthias. But did you notice what the author of Proverbs says? The lot is cast into the lap, but not some decisions, not most decisions. He says every decision is from the Lord. When we think about it, it's a wild verse that, that God is not just in control of, of some things. He's not just in control of most things. He's in control of all things. He's chosen how many days that you and I are going to live on earth. He provides our jobs. He provides our paychecks. He provides our families, our homes, our food, our friends. Nothing surprises him and nothing escapes his sight. God is sovereign and in control over all things. But how does that fit with free will? I mean, yeah, God is sovereign, but we have free choice. How do those two things fit together? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Let me uh, solve the, the problem of God's sovereignty and human free will in, in three words. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I've, I'll ever meet somebody that does. 
because the Bible very clearly teaches that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. But the Bible also very clearly teaches that, that we have free will. Think about salvation. We respond to the message of the gospel with faith, with believing in Jesus. That certainly is a choice, isn't it? We see both in scripture. And how those two things fit together, I think it's above our human pay grade. I think it's above what we can comprehend as people. Maybe we'll understand it more fully in eternity. I certainly hope so. But I think it's one of the things that we have to put in our theological mystery box. But here's a mistake that many Christ followers will make. Because we can't understand necessarily how God's sovereignty and how human free will fit together, many people will reduce one or the other to try to reconcile the, the challenge. And I think more often than not, people tend to reduce God's sovereignty, not human free will. Sometimes we forget that God's the driver. He's in control. We are not in the driver's seat of our life. And there's this idea floating around our culture that's infiltrated the church as well, that we are all self-made people. That if I work hard, if I study hard, if I apply myself at work or at school, then when I succeed, I get to pat myself on the back because I've arrived. I did it myself. If you get a raise, it's only because you worked hard, right? Or, you know, if you beat the whole family at Monopoly over spring break. It's only because you're an absolute genius at the game of Monopoly. Or how about this? If you make all conference on your athletic team or, or you totally get an A plus on that big exam, it's only because you've worked harder than everyone else, right? <laughs> if that's your perspective, I'm sorry, but you're giving yourself way too much credit. Your skill on the basketball court is a gift from God. Your family and your upbringing is a gift from God. Your ability to rock your college classes is a gift from God. Your opportunities with your job are a gift from God. God is in control of every single aspect of your life. This is important. Don't miss this. All of life, every aspect is from God. Therefore, all of life, every aspect is for God. Because there's nothing that escapes his sight, because God is in control of every aspect of our life, everything that we have is a gift from him, then everything that we have is a gift to him. When God's our ultimate thing, when we look to him to provide our ultimate satisfaction, when we live our lives to glorify and honor him, that's when this passage makes sense. The problem with money, the problem with materialism, the problem with wealth emerges when we look to money, when we look to stuff to provide the pleasure that only God can provide. Money is a really lousy God because it's not secure and it doesn't satisfy long-term. It always leaves us wanting more. But instead, when God is the ultimate thing in our life, then he provides us great latitude to enjoy the gifts he's given. So here's our big idea tonight. You might expect it to be life is good, but it's not. I'm going to change it a little bit. Here's our big idea. God is good. Life's a gift. Enjoy both. God is good. Life's a gift. Enjoy both. If you only remember one thing tonight, that's it. 
But I think verse 19 in our text provides some great insight. Follow along with me as I read again verse 19 in Ecclesiastes 5. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. The wise Solomon actually gives us a template for how we should individually respond to to wealth and possessions. Three things, and here's the first. We have to enjoy God's good gifts. Number one, enjoy God's good gifts. If we had to pick out a theme from our text, uh, maybe a theme word, one of the words that comes to mind is certainly the word gift or give. That concept comes out three separate times within our text. But we have to step back and ask, What's the best gift that God has ever given to us? It's certainly not material, it's immaterial. The greatest gift God could give to you and I is the gift of himself. I wanna read from Ephesians 1. You don't have to turn there, um, but listen to this text, how Paul starts the letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 1, starting in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That might be one of the coolest texts in all of scripture, a plan from the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. I mean, think of the the big theology words that Paul included in Ephesians chapter one. Some great words, forgiveness and redemption and adoption, justification and reconciliation. God has united all things in Christ. And even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything to save ourselves, we were born God's enemies, uh, unable to do anything for our own salvation except bring our own sin to the, sa- the table. When we were God's enemy, he saved us. Not by works done by ourselves in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the spirit. He bought us back from slavery to sin. And when we talk about the good news of the gospel, when we talk about the blessings of knowing Christ, sometimes we make ourselves the center and we, we talk about the benefits. Sounds like this. Yeah, I'm glad I'm a Christian because, yeah, I get to go to heaven. And that means I'm not going to hell. That's a good thing. And yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see all my relatives that know Jesus that have gone on before me. And, and then when we get to heaven, there's going to be no more suffering or disease or brokenness or death or crying or pain anymore. Are those good things? Yeah, those are great things, but we're missing the best thing. The best gift of our redemption is God himself. Have you ever thought about how amazing it is that the God of the universe who created everything, who created you, who created me, desires to have a relationship with you? We have the opportunity to talk to him literally anytime that we want. Wants to spend eternity with you. Despite your sin, despite your past, despite your rebellion, God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. That should blow our mind. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
The greatest gift that God has given us is the gift of himself, that he wants to know us, that he yearns jealously over his spirit inside of us. God's greatest gift is the gift of himself. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Because that gift of, of God himself, it's available to all people, but it only applies to those that open the gift, that received the gift by faith. Because our sin separates us from God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We've earned eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. But Jesus lived and died in your place. He rose from the dead. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Have you believed in Jesus? It's the most important decision that any of us could make. But when we know Christ, when we have a relationship with him, true and abiding joy comes from our relationship with God. He is the source of all joy. Is he the most important person in your life? Or are you looking for joy and meaning from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or a spouse? Is God the primary object of our worship? Or are we spending more time and effort and energy investing in physical fitness, Netflix, or our relationship with our friends? Do we daily invest in our relationship with the Lord? Or do we just kind of talk to him whenever we need something? If you feel less than joyful, could it be that you're neglecting your relationship with God, the source of all joy and ultimate joy in our life? If you're not feeling joyful, could it be that you're looking to find joy ultimately in something that God's created rather than finding it in himself? Because when we know God, when we have a relationship with him, when he's number one in our life, when he's our ultimate thing, then every good thing that you and I receive is not a product of our own work and effort. Every good thing that we receive then is a gift from God. I think that James had our passage in Ecclesiastes in mind when he wrote his letter. Listen to these words from James 1, verse 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow to change. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from our Heavenly Father. When you receive that tax refund, it's not a gift from the federal government. It's a gift from God. When you receive a raise, that's not a gift from your boss. That's a gift from God. When your friends surprise you on your birthday, that's a gift from God. When you enjoyed that family vacation, that's a gift from God. God gives us the gifts and also gives us the grace to enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. I mean, if you and I were to pause and just think about our life, we could come up with hundreds and hundreds of blessings that God has given to us. And if we believe James, then every single one of those blessings is a gift from God. Your house, car, family, parents, friends, hobbies, health, music, art, sports, adventure, trips, young adults, your church, the amazing state of Wisconsin, peace, books, the Green Bay Packers. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the gifts that God has given to us. Now, certainly those things can become ultimate things. They can work to replace God in our life. That's a problem. Certainly we can use those things outside of the boundaries that God desires and that becomes sinful. But when we enjoy the gifts that God has given us inside biblical boundaries, then we have great latitude to enjoy the gifts 
that he's given to us. And I'm convinced the single best way we can grow in enjoying the gifts that God has given to us is through gratitude. Simply by saying thank you. Have you ever been around a thankful person? It's really refreshing. There was a student at uh, camp on our mission trip that was maybe the most thankful student I have ever met. He's a senior in high school, and he always said thank you about, for everything. And it wasn't fake. It wasn't manipulative. He was genuinely thankful, and it was really refreshing. I mean, compare that to, have you ever been around an entitled person? Okay, don't look at somebody at your table. Thank you. <laughs> Being around an entitled person is not refreshing. It's annoying because they're not thankful for anything. They feel like they deserve it. It's important for us to be grateful, not entitled. Are you an entitled person? Are you grateful? If you don't know the answer to that, ask your parents. They will gladly tell you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You, you ask mom and dad, they'll tell you if you're entitled. Give them a one to 10 scale. They would have fun with that. But what we've seen is that studies in the field of psychology have actually confirmed this to be true. Let me just highlight two that I think are important. Dr. Emmons and Dr. McCullough have partnered together doing extensive research on the correlation between gratitude and quality of life. And here's one study that they did. They gathered a group of people and put them in three separate groups and gave each of the three groups an assignment for 10 weeks. For 10 weeks, the first group had to grab a journal and journal about things they were thankful for every single day. Group two, grabbed the same journal. Instead, they journaled about things that annoyed them or irritated them every single day. Oh, that'd be terrible. Okay, the third group, the third group just journaled about whatever they wanted. But here's what the study found. The first group, after the end of the 10 weeks, they were more optimistic. They felt better about the quality of life. And get this, had fewer trips to the doctor. Interesting because they were growing in their gratitude. Here's another study I found was interesting. Dr. Seligman has also researched different types of positive psychological interventions. In other words, some tasks or, or things that we can engage in that would improve the quality of our life. In one study, which included 411 people, he experimented with various types of interventions, but he found one of the interventions to be most fruitful of all of the interventions that he tried. Here was the assignment, to find someone that had never been thanked properly and to write them a personal letter and hand deliver it. Of the dozens and dozens of interventions that this psychologist experimented with, that was the one that promoted the greatest results in his study. I always find it encouraging when a secular study affirms what we see in Scripture. That gratitude actually improves the quality of our life. When we pause to thank God, I mean genuinely thank God for all of the good gifts that he's given to us, we're going to enjoy them more. We're not going to be as entitled. Intentional gratitude, it increases our joy. Now, there's a chance that maybe you're living a glass half-empty life. Maybe you're living and your life. And I've seen some of your posts on social media that may be true for some of us. But if that's you, gratitude doesn't just happen accidentally. You've got to be intentional. Maybe that means starting your own gratitude journal and for 10 weeks, writing down 10 things that you're thankful to God for every night. 
before you go to bed and just seeing what that does in your own heart over the next 10 weeks. Maybe it means writing a long letter to someone that's never been thanked and hand delivering it and saying, thank you. Or maybe it means just in our times of, of personal prayer, going out of our way to thank God for the good gifts that he's given to us. Can we say life is good? Absolutely. Because God has given us so many good things to enjoy. Let me highlight just a couple. Maybe you love being outside. Summer's right around the corner. So go ahead and camp your summer away. But when you do, worship God in his creation. Thank him for the beautiful part of the country that we live in. Enjoy the moment rather than just wishing the day away. Or maybe you enjoy a great, perfectly grilled, 45-day dry-aged ribeye. If you weren't hungry, you are now. Sorry <laughs> if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> but when you enjoy that perfect steak, thank God for the gift and enjoy it. Maybe you have a beach vacation planned, or you just returned home from one. Enjoy it, but make it an extended time of Sabbath rest. Get some extended quiet time in. Get some extended prayer time in. Bring a good book and extend a heart of gratitude to God for giving you the gift of a peaceful vacation. Maybe you love playing sports. Enjoy that pickup basketball game. Enjoy the summer volleyball league. Enjoy it, but use it as a way to build gospel bridges. Maybe you love to work on arts and crafts. Enjoy it to the glory of God. God's made you to be creative. Use that gift and extend a heart of gratitude to God in the midst of doing something that he created you to enjoy. Or maybe you found an incredible community. Maybe you've found a, a great group of friends here at Young Adults or, or somewhere else in the community. That's certainly a gift from God. Enjoy it, but be intentional. Watch out for gossip. Be inclusive, not exclusive. Find ways to integrate your relationship with God and your conversations. Live on mission with your friend group. What would it look like to pray with your friends or to study scripture with your friends or to go to one of the many camps representing our young adult family and, and serve and do dishes for a weekend like one of our small groups did a couple of months ago? What would it look like to practice evangelism with your friends? What a great way to live on mission, building intentional community. Because sometimes we like to put all of our life in a box, multiple boxes. We have our hobby box and our work box and our family box and our friend box. Oh yeah, and then here's my God box and my young adults box and my church box. And we give God these boxes over here, but then these boxes over here, we think, I can do whatever I want with those as long as I give God what he wants in, in the God box and the young adults box. That's not how life works. All of life is one box, just one. And all of life is a gift from God. Therefore, all of life is for God. And we want to infuse our relationship with God. We want to ask, how can I glorify God in every single aspect of our life? And one of the ways that we can do that is by enjoying the good gifts that God's given to us. Here's our second principle and we see from verse 19, we have to accept our lot in life. Number two, accept your lot in life. Interesting phrase that we don't use very much. What the author is saying is that God's sovereign over our position in life. God is sovereign over your social class. He's sovereign over your income level. He's sovereign over the house that you live in. 
We need to accept what God has given, accept what he's blessed us with. He's not saying that we have to take a vow of poverty or practice ascetism or give away all of our income and live on the smallest amount possible. Now we have the freedom to do that, but I don't believe that's mandated. We can't swing the pendulum in the other direction and be so consumed with money and finance that making as much as we can becomes the God in our life. No, we need to accept our lot, accept where God has placed us. There's always gonna be someone poorer than you, always. And there's always gonna be someone more wealthy, always. And the problem of poverty is not going anywhere. Why do I believe that we'll never fix global poverty? Because that's what Jesus said while he was on earth. Doesn't mean that we don't work to alleviate it, but Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. We need to accept the place that God has put us in and believe that a bigger paycheck is not gonna make you happier. Enjoy and be thankful for God's good gifts. Work hard, receive what he's given. Don't long for greener grass with a different job and a higher paycheck. We need to accept our lot in life. And how do we do that? Two ideas. One, gotta be generous. With what God's given you, practice generosity. Are you giving to your local church? Are you giving to missions locally, nationally, or around the world? Are you being generous with your friends, with your neighbors? Are you holding what you have with a closed fist or an open palm? Gotta be generous with what God's given to us. The second way we can accept our lot in life is by practicing contentment. Paul said that godliness with contentment is a great gain. Yet we live in one of the most discontent cultures in the history of the world, always wanting more. And contentment could mean a couple of different things. Maybe you need to be content with where God has placed you geographically. The grass might be literally greener in Florida, but maybe not metaphorically. We have to grow where God has planted us and be content with where we're living. We have also have to find contentment financially. There's a conversation I hear often. It's usually among young adult men, and it goes something like this. Did you know that if I go to this graduate program at this school that I'll be able to get out making $150,000 a year? Or did you know that if I, get, I go to this program at the tech that the average salary graduating day one out of the tech is $80,000 a year? I hear that conversation all the time. Not saying there's something wrong with making money, but that should not be the highest criteria on our list. Maybe you've got to be content with where God has placed you financially. Maybe you need to be content with where God has placed you relationally. God's sovereign over your singleness. God's sovereign over your relationship. God's sovereign over your marriage. Maybe contentment means that we have to do a little better job of living in the moment. Have you ever noticed how often we tend to plan our next vacation on a current vacation? Have you ever noticed that? Like it happens all the time. I do it all the time. Like that's stupid, right? Enjoy the vacation you're on without planning the next one. Live in the moment and be content. For a final principle, look at the last part of verse 19 where the author of Ecclesiastes commends us to rejoice in our job. That's our final principle, rejoice in your job. Work is not a necessary evil, even though it might feel like that sometimes. 
God's created you. He created me to work. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they had a job to do. They weren't just sitting on the side of the river drinking virgin pina coladas. They had a job to do. They had to cultivate and work the garden. The command to work was given before sin, before the fall. God's created you. He's created me to work. Now, because of sin, work is hard. Sin has infiltrated work, but that doesn't mean that work is evil. And we could talk about verse after verse after verse in Scripture that, re- that exhort us to reject laziness and work hard. But since you and I were created to work, God has given us the opportunity to rejoice in our work, to rejoice in our jobs. Now, certainly there are days that work is frustrating. Spending hours on a project that gets tossed in the recycle bin is frustrating. Or tolerating squirrely junior hires the day after spring break, bless your soul. Or maybe you work for days on a project and the boss just says, yeah, that was not what I was hoping for. It's frustrating. A machine breaks down mid-project and you spend an entire day troubleshooting and getting absolutely nothing done. A conflict conversation with a coworker that goes terribly. Like those are frustrating things. But at the same time, think about the wins that we can celebrate. Investing in a group of students and seeing them grow from September through May. A conflict conversation with a coworker that goes way better than expecting and expected and now your relationship is even stronger. Having, putting in a hard day's work and exceeding your daily quota. Those are great things to celebrate and God's given us the opportunity to rejoice in our job. Think of Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. That we can apply that verse into every aspect of our life. Another way for us to rejoice in our job is to view our job as a means to an end. God has placed you strategically in your job for a purpose, to glorify him by making disciples. Remember our vision for 2022, to pray for one person a day, to engage one person a week, and to invite one person a month. How have you been doing with our vision? Specifically, how have you been doing within the context of your job? Who are you praying for? Who are you praying with? Who have you been engaging in spiritual conversations? Who have you been inviting to encounter Christ? Because you're not just a nurse. You're a Christ follower who happens to be a nurse. You're not just a teacher. You're a Christ follower who happens to be a teacher. You're not just an IT specialist. You're a Christ follower who happens to work in IT. Our relationship with God should rise to the top of our priority list. We can rejoice in our work when we see God using us in our occupations for the advance of his kingdom. Well, as we wrap up, let's look at the final verse of our text in Ecclesiastes 5. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is a really interesting verse. But here's what Solomon is saying. That if we were just to to think and to dwell on the meaning of life, the existential question of life, we'd be depressed. And that's like the entire book of Ecclesiastes. 
It's thinking on the existential questions of life, and it gets really depressing because life is heavy, it's meaningless. What Solomon is saying is that God gives us good gifts to enjoy, to distract us, to preoccupy us, to get our mind off of the, the frailty and the pain of life and to enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. What a gift. If God didn't give us those good gifts, we would just be alone to dwell on the big questions of life and to be depressed about it. What a gift that God has given us so many things to enjoy. And when we live life for God and from God, then God gives us so much latitude to enjoy life and enjoy our relationship with him because both are good gifts. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this profound encouragement from Ecclesiastes. Forgive us for being ungrateful and entitled children at times who probably don't always do the best job of saying thank you because you've given us so many things. You've given us so many good things. Teach us not to take those for granted. Teach us to say thank you, to direct our heart towards the giver of every good gift, and that's you. In the midst of the pursuits of our life, may we put you first, and may you use each aspect of our life to bring honor and glory to you. So as we dialogue, take some time to talk in small groups tonight, may this just be an encouragement, a time to deepen, not just with one another, but deepen our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.